You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Tigran Nazarian, who helps run TenWeb, which is a WordPress hosting platform. They're using a combination of PHP, Laravel, Python, and Node to power everything. Tigran, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be invited to your show. Today, we're going to talk a lot of about technology. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform? Uh, I'm Tigran Nazarian. I'm a co-founder and CEO of TenWeb. We provide automated WordPress platform for everyone agencies, freelancers, and uh, individuals. Okay. Do you want to give a quick background on how you started this application, or is it just you programming it, or is there a team behind this? There is a large team behind this platform. We have 70-people team, and half of them are engineers. 34 people are engineers. And we came to this platform after having a big experience in making WordPress plugins. With this team, we made a business around more than 50, 60 plugins. Later, we switched to providing hosting and services for WordPress. Okay. And when you made that switch over to this hosting, so how long has that been going on for? It took three years for us to develop the platform since 2017 until the release of the final version in 2020. Okay. So was that like early 2020, late 2020? Late 2020, October 2020. Okay, cool. So, I mean, you don't need to share specific numbers if you can't, but what type of traffic are we dealing with nowadays on that platform that you have up and running? We have a few thousand of uh, WordPress sites hosted on the platform. And uh, for core services, there is a hundred thousand of traffic, daily traffic. Right, because it's one of those situations, right, where it's like, I guess every one of your customers then has their own customers, right? So like, if I had my site hosted on your platform, maybe that's getting a hundred thousand hits, like that is a hundred thousand uh, hits that you need to serve through your platform, right? Not necessarily. We have developed a platform in a way that the traffic of our customers, hosted sites, it uh, doesn't go through the our core services or other services which are part of them. They are independent. So in this way, we can have a scalable solution for different types of WordPress websites, including those with high traffic. For example, the uh, top... Uh, traffic websites hosted on our platform. They have a uh, hundred thousand of, or few hundred thousands of monthly visitors. So, and uh, their traffic doesn't ma- make us problem for the platform itself. Nice. So I, I know a couple uh, minutes before we recorded, you know, you gave me like a, a breakdown of your, basically all the services that you have, and there's a lot of things going on and using many different programming languages, many, many different services. Do you want to just maybe focus on or go over what we're specifically going to be talking about today, like which component of your stack? Great. Perhaps I'll list all the services and all the platform parts and later to to say what we are going to focus on. So the platform has user management component, billing component, which are core services, authentication component, of course. Uh, there is service for uh, providing connection to client websites, which is manager service. There are services to have uh, to provide optimizations and performance. So we will talk about these two, two services. There are services which uh, manage uh, cron jobs, backups, and security scans. 
So we won't talk about that today. And there is a big uh, part of the platform related hosting, hosting instances, uh, data centers, uh, containers with uh, client sites. We will talk about it. So hosting, optimization, and performance services. Okay. So now I see why you have uh, 34 engineers, right? This is probably a pretty large infrastructure. Right. For a startup, it may be it's, it may seem to be a lot, but to build a real big platform to have 30 engineers, yeah. Right. So I remember, you know, you mentioned that you are using PHP and Laravel and there's a little bit of Node and Python. Do you want to go over why you chose those specific languages and frameworks for specific services that you've built? Right. So first off, uh, of course, we need to understand our uh, the background of our developers. They were PHP developers all until starting the uh, building the platform. So they built WordPress plugins. And uh, of course, it's natural when you consider the development stack of your engineers and you know the architecture, you know what you are, you want to build. And our first part was core services. They have a SQL database, relational database. And we thought about why we should go about after something completely different. We have every, uh, everything we need, our developers, senior developers. So we have all, all the experience in building with PHP. So that's why we choose to use PHP with Laravel to build core services. This is how we started. After that, some parts of the platform, we thought that it's better to uh, write them with Node.js or with Python. And we, these guys learned these uh, two language technologies as well. But most of the platform, it's written with PHP. Okay. And I think, like, I am not a Laravel developer, but I remember reading about that where that framework has lots of stuff included, right? So, like, user management, subscriptions, and billing, there's, you know, stuff the creator of Laravel created to do all that. Uh, are you using any of those libraries, like Spark or whatever that tool was that allows you to set up, like, billing, like, right out of the box, kind of? I think we use some of them. I'm not pretty sure about all the details, but we use some of them. But on the other hand, the platform and the architecture is quite big, so we do stuff custom, custom way to adapt to our needs. Okay. So like if you had to guess, I mean, probably don't have these numbers off the top of your head, but when it comes to like number of, of lines written that you've written in Node and Python and PHP, we're talking like hundreds of thousands here? Much more than hundreds of thousands. Wow. Much more. That's uh, approaching, well, like half a million, million lines of code? I think at least million. Because... Uh, the core team built a team of engineers uh, core services. Uh, there were five, six people, all senior engineers, architects, and they really worked hard. During two more years, they, I'm sure they wrote not one million. Right. So all those services that you mentioned before, like core and the performance and the hosting, uh, do all of these live then like in their own separate Git repos? They're all totally separate, independent. You can deploy them uh, independently if you want. Right, exactly. We chose uh, to have as independent as much as possible architecture. Uh, yeah, they, they these services talk with each other, but we their deployment is independent. So we can deploy one part, uh, like you have, if you have a bug fix somewhere in manager service, we can do it separately from other services. Although, uh, to be honest, we haven't switched to microservices architecture yet. It's uh, on its way, but yeah, you can see that 
moving uh, the large platform to microservices architecture is it takes a lot of time, but we are on the way. Yeah, for sure. Now, those engineers, when it comes to splitting them up to work on specific services, do you just have them chunked out like, okay, 10 engineers are going to work on the performance service, someone else is going to do the core service like that? Or does everyone kind of dip their toes everywhere? Some, something between, I would say, uh, correctly. Uh, perhaps one or two engineers were focused in one in specific platform. For example, for core services, someone, one or two engineers, they build billing and the user management system. Or manager service, uh, one or two people, they build it from scratch. But uh, generally, yeah, since we have a not big team and uh, they are, well, experienced in... Uh, code written by uh, other guys. So we have quite flexibility in this regard and people understand all the architecture. Uh, everyone from core team understands all the architecture of the system and they can help each other with uh, their uh, respective parts. Okay. So maybe now, I mean, you mentioned you want to talk a little bit more in detail about the performance service, right? Right. Sure. Do you want to dive in just a little bit deeper about, and that one, correct me if I'm wrong here, was written with Node? Performance service is written with uh, Node.js and the optimizer service is written using Laravel. These are different sites. Optimizer service optimizes images. Okay. Several algorithms for image, for image compression. So let's start with that. Okay. So for the optimizer, Laravel, do you happen to know maybe like any libraries off the top of your head that you use that really helped you deal with that? Like just optimizing images or whatever else you need to do there? Uh, yeah, sure. There are some libraries. Uh, I'm not sure about their names, but there are some libraries for image processing. So, for example, we need to squeeze or compress uh, JPEG images. There are some specific libraries for that. Although uh, some parts uh, we have built from scratch. This is for image optimization, which is written with Laravel. Uh, regarding performance, we wrote it with uh, Node.js. And what, what does it do? It actually uh, checks Google PageSpeed score with, with, with our current architecture. Uh, either it requests PageSpeed score from Google or uh, checks it manually. Okay. So I have a question for you about the optimizing service. So. I don't know exactly how it works, right? But I'm envisioning that you maybe send an API request with an image or whatever, and then it processes that image, does whatever it needs to do, like make thumbnails or can you know compress them, and then it returns a response back to whoever called it. Is that how how it works, or like how does it actually get used? Yes, uh, this way it it connects to client website through the image optimizer plugin, and the plugin itself it browses uh, through the images. Uh, resources folders, uploads folder in WordPress site, and uh, one can choose which images one wants to optimize and to what degree, that is to compress uh, a lot or compress on average. Of course, one needs to consider the trade-off between image quality and size. So after that, uh, the service uh, connects to the, uh, the plugin connects to the service through API and uploads images there, and they go on a server side, uh, they are being optimized there and they send back to the uh, WordPress to uh, update in media library. Okay. So the plugin is something someone would install locally in their WordPress, and then it makes that API call out to your optimizer service. Exactly. 
Cool. And then you mentioned that one's written with Laravel and PHP. Was that just because the developers working on that were just more familiar with PHP? Uh, first, yes, but uh, we understood that it was not a mistake. It was a good, good solution. Although, of course, there are many li libraries for image uh, optimizations uh, written on Python, but uh, there is now much difference. Right. And then for saving all of this information or just records about, you know, I guess what images were optimized and from like which client or whatever, you have all this being saved into MongoDB, right? Right. Let me check. It is. Yeah, it's it's MongoDB database. Exactly. Yeah. Just glancing at your tech stack over here, it looks like MongoDB is pretty frequently used. Uh, do you want to get into, you know, why you chose to use that as your primary database for some of these services? Yeah. Uh, we, we use the MongoDB in cases when we need to store large strings of data, which are not uh, much coupled relationally with foreign keys or primary keys with other uh, other um, entities in other tables or databases. For example, we use the MySQL for core services because there is user, billing, and uh, domain, client, they need to uh, be connected together with foreign primary keys. But uh, for optimizer, it's uh, more less coupled data and more textual data. So we use in these cases MongoDB. Okay. And then likewise, I guess for the performance service, also using MongoDB, is that similar to the optimizer and just decoupled? Exactly. Exactly. It Because it retrieves data from uh, Google uh, PageSpeed service, uh, it just uh, stores and there is no much processing. Right. And then for that performance service, you know, you mentioned that you kind of just, what does that do? Does that just bundle up CSS and JavaScript assets kind of, or does it do more than that? Uh, the actual component which uh, is doing uh, optimization is not located here. This is for checking performance. But for bundling scripts and styles or moving them back and forth or delaying their load, there is plugin. Which connects, which is connected, uh, hosting, and uh, web server inside hosting environment. The, this is for feedback of how well the plugin and hosting are uh, optimizing page uh, the content of pages. So we have feedback loop, act, uh, loop actually. Here the optimization takes place in the hosting site and through the plugin and performance services checks how well it is done and sends uh, feedback to the service. And we have also automation here in a sense that we uh, choose the best parameters for optimizations because one needs to be very careful when optimizing scripts and styles. If you, let's say, uh, if there is some dependency between scripts and you uh, violate the dependency, uh, JavaScript error may happen. So automatic check need uh, to take place to make sure that uh, after every opti optimization step, you have a better uh, web page and nothing has been broken. Right. So that performance score, then you're getting back something like, oh, you got an 82. That's like an A plus or whatever, right? Exactly. You got an 82. Let's do it more. You got 83. That's fine. Oh, that's crash. Go back. Now, that does seem like uh, an interesting thing to maybe talk about when it comes to that dependency management, right? I'm not primarily a WordPress developer, but like most developers, we at least created at least one WordPress site back in the day or even currently. And 
I remember every time I installed a plugin, it felt like every plugin had its own individual scripts and its own individual CSS. So yeah, it's like, how do you go about handling optimizing that when you have like 35 plugins installed, each with their own separate world of all these dependencies? Yeah, that, that's that's not an easy task. You need to be careful uh, to take into account their mutual dependencies. The WordPress itself allows to have a dependency of scripts and styles. That is, if you have dependency, you place the dependent script, let's say, after the, the first one. But uh, when uh, doing optimization, we need to take this into account. We need to go through all the pages on the website to make sure that we don't uh, violate the dependency. For example, some scripts require that they uh, be on the front of the page, closer to the head of the page. So we, we need to make sure that we don't break that. Right. So is that just a whole bunch of custom code that you've written then to handle the, all those edge cases? Exactly. And uh, the problem also is uh, page-specific. You, you cannot only optimize or make sure that front page is looking okay, but the rest are uh, maybe crashed. Right. What about cases where, I guess this is back to dependency management stuff, but like if one plugin says, hey, you know what? I really need jQuery, whatever, like 2.1. But another one is like, you know what? Actually, I need jQuery 2.3. Like, do you end up just bundling both versions of jQuery, even though technically maybe both would work, but how, how does that get handled? Uh, actually, this is not part of uh, the platform itself. This is how uh, correctly plugins and uh, WordPress teams should be written. Yes, there is a problem uh, with the uh, correct versioning of jQuery right now in uh, WordPress. The latest updates of WordPress, I think 5.6 version and the version before that and after that, they finally move uh, upgrade the jQuery from version 1 to version 3. You know, WordPress is existing 15 years and until now there is version 1. And all this problem comes because of uh, dependencies of uh, plugins. So that is uh, to do for WordPress developers to make sure their WordPress uh, their dependency or on J, uh, jQuery version is uh, up to date. Okay, so at least you don't need to deal with that because that sounds like it would be a very complicated problem. Right, we we don't deal with that. That is not in not our uh, scope. Right. So how does it work, by the way, when it comes to something like the performance servers getting rendered back to the user? Is that just then all handled through the WordPress plugin? They just go to their dashboard, their admin panel or whatever, and they can just see those scores right there? Or do they end up connecting like to your domain uh, for whatever you know tenant account that they have? Uh, we've built a dashboard when that is front end of our platform uh, where we display all those uh, scores. Uh, for every site, we measure it and regularly update it. So uh, client uh, don't need to go to uh, the WordPress admin area to see it. Every site connected to TemWeb, either connected or hosted on TemWeb platform, uh, we automatically measure that page speed score. I see. Okay. So this is all like they just have an account on TemWeb, they log in there, and they can see all the good stuff that you provide. Exactly. And this is actually the aha moment for TemWeb. People come and they uh, we offer them to uh, make a copy of their website on our platform and to compare score to see is uh, score going to be better or worse. And when they're comparing there, uh, they pay, it's it's not a rule, but uh, 
usually there is a 30 or 40 point increase in pay speed score. And after showing pay, pay speed score uh, on our platform, we offer them to consider if they want to move their website to the platform. And the most important part here for optimization, I think, is that if you have all the components on your site, that is hosting, plugins, uh, web server, CDN, caching, uh, you can have good page speed score. But uh, if you have only part of the components, let's say if you are, if you can change or make any changes on plugin only or on hosting site only, uh, your, your capabilities are quite limited in uh, increasing page speed score. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, if a visitor is in the United States and a plugin, some asset is being served from Australia or something like that, then, you know, 300 millisecond latency just that, just for that. Right. And if a site developer doesn't have access to hosting configuration, they they can't make hosting any better. They just need to make sure plugin is in its best configuration. But if you can change both hosting, plugin and caching parameters, you will have much better result. Right. So maybe we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but on the topic of hosting, like that is a whole other service that you have here that was written with um, Python using MySQL on the back end, right? Uh, right. We built hosting infrastructure on top of Google Cloud. We uh, pack sites in Linux containers, which in turn are packed in the instance uh, environment. So in this way, we have an effective separation of each website while uh, saving uh, resources. So we get we, we, we won't get shared hosting with this architecture because every site is independent. They just share the same IP. But regarding resources, they are completely independent. Okay, so before we get into that, like the actual, you know, our, architecting the deployment stuff, do you want to go over a little bit how it was built? So on the Python side of things, do you just have this running behind Flask or Django or some other web framework, or is it just a Python process? I'm not sure is if this is Flask or Django, but this is uh, actually, it has a web ser service, which uh, helps to manage the instances uh, with uh, client-side containers. So they have API. And uh, there is a separate service which manages that. So through this API, requests to, let's say, delete container or uh, bring back a copy of container or change DNS records, uh, requests are made um, to that instance service, which manages instances with uh, client websites. Okay, so is that is that UI for that something that only you have access to as like a super admin of TenWeb, or is this something that is just another like menu item in your customer's dashboard? Uh, customers have no access to that, and they they actually don't need to care about that because everything works uh, automatically. The customer, for example, may uh, move their website from staging environment to live environment and underlying service will do all the necessary stuff or they can create the staging environment because by default it's uh, disabled and again the instance service will create se separate container for uh, website uh, for staging environment 
Okay. So maybe before we dive a little bit deeper into that, you know, you mentioned using Linux containers and containers in general. Do you happen to be using Docker anywhere in this stack, like even for any of the other services or no? Uh, there is Docker used at least in one of our services, but we have built the client sites using Linux containers. Uh, actually, there is no much difference in functionality, but regarding uh, optimization, it's better choice because Linux container have a smaller size and they allow to have more websites on a single instance because the container itself, it weighs less. Right, because I remember uh, a little bit before Docker was even a thing. Yeah, I used to use Linux containers all the time just for my own development environment. And it was really cool because it was almost just like having sort of like a mini VM. Like it's not like Docker where you just one, run one process, right? You can run multiple things in there. You can have systemd running in there with five different processes, database, web servers, etc. Is that kind of how you use it in your platform then? Like you just run multiple things in there instead of just one process? Uh I think, yes, we run multiple things because uh, everything should be inside that container and uh, including uh, engines, web server, including database as well. Right. So maybe, yeah, that's a good thing to talk about now. Maybe you can transition into Nginx. So from your end customer's point of view, they don't have to worry about any of that stuff, right? Do you just automatically throw Nginx in front of their WordPress instance? And, you know, they're none the wiser, but now they have all these optimizations, gzipping and whatever else Nginx is doing for you? Exactly. Actually, our customers even, uh, okay, in case of Nginx, there is no HD access, but they don't need to configure anything like permalinks uh, or anything writing or by writing code. I, actually, I don't remember much cases, perhaps just a few cases when uh, our clients requested some kind of customization on server side and our developers did it. But usually uh, there is no need to interfere with that code. Everything goes smoothly. Right. And then do you also handle dealing with SSL certificates for them, maybe using Let's Encrypt or something else? Yes, exactly. We, we provide uh, SSL certificates with uh, Let's Encrypt for hosted websites. They automatically are enabled and they're automatically are being updated. I think every each three months they are being updated. So the client doesn't need to even think about that. Of course, if they have some dedicated or special certificate, they can upload it and to use it instead of the default Let's Encrypt certificate. So on the topic of Let's Encrypt then, I mean, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I remember there being some limitation with maybe the number of certificates you can register per account. But if you have like this hosting thing where, you know, you're dealing with thousands of customers issuing thousands of certificates, did you have to reach out to Let's Encrypt to get your limits raised or did everything just work out of the box for you? Uh, everything works out from the box. We haven't... I hope I'm not mistaken. <laughs> right. But then for issuing the certificates, every customer of yours, like each individual site, do they get their own dedicated certificate, right? Like you're not just using, um, you know, server names where you can issue 10 different domains technically in one certificate. Well, let me check for one second. I'm not sure about that. So maybe another way to ask this one would be, let's say that I were a customer of yours and I own the domain example.com and you issued a Let's Encrypt certificate for me. Then if I were to go and look at that certificate's details, would it only show, you know, example.com and maybe like, you know, dub, 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 that example.com, any subdomains for example.com, like it wouldn't show 50 other domains from other customers. 
Uh, okay, the certificate is per subdomain because all sites hosted on TimeWeb are default, they go to subdomain. So each one of them has uh, its own certificate. Yeah, but when they, when they place their uh, point, their uh, domain uh, to the website hosted on TimeWeb, they can replace it with their custom certificate. Oh, I see. Okay, so in that example, then for me, technically, I'd have something like example.10web.com as my domain. Like maybe you use a different URL structure, but it's something like that. Like it becomes a subdomain on your domain, not my own domain, unless I, you know, set up a custom domain. Exactly, it works in that that way. Okay, so then if someone were to want to use a custom domain, do they have to then provide their own SSL cert? Yes, they have to provide the. Uh, actually, sorry, they 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 can. Uh, go without their custom uh, SSL certificate. Okay, and then you will still issue one for them on that domain? Yes. Yes. Nice. So on the topic of performance and at least maybe Nginx a little bit, um, or just you know hosting other people's stuff, you mentioned CDN. So do you have a CDN sitting in front of all of your customers then? Uh, actually, not yet. We <laughs> haven't had so much resources and time to build CDN, but uh, this is one of the top items uh, in our roadmap. Cu cu currently, there are a couple of uh, top priorities in the roadmap. First one is uh, user management and uh, mobile dashboard, and then comes the CDN and other uh, features. Right. When it comes to implementing a CDN, have you done any research on maybe like which CDN provider you would use or because I can't imagine rolling out your own CDN unless you really wanted to throw out like, you know, 50,000 servers across the globe or something. Yeah, of course, it's better not to invent a wheel and uh, use the best available solution. Uh, until now, we haven't uh, decided on which one to use, but for sure, if we can use uh, available solution which works well, we won't need to create a new custom solution. Because, yeah, creating CDN is not an easy thing. We need to uh, spread it across the data centers uh, and uh, do a lot of stuff manually. It's much better to use all of the existing solution. Right. So before you jump over to hosting all of this and that awesome part of the conversation, uh, let's dial it back to these services that you've created, right? The core service, manager, performance, optimizer. Are we missing anything that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about that you use as part of the stack? Like, do you happen to use Redis or Memcached for caching or background workers or anything interesting like that or no? Mm, not sure we have something interesting here. We have Redis on client websites. Uh and Redis on core, because uh, we need to cache uh, requests going to core database. Uh, actually, this is the most uh, busiest part. The core service and with its uh, main database is the most busiest part of the system. So we use, of course, caching there, but we also consider a possibility, which we actually approved it. We uh, will split it in a way to decrease the load of uh, core services because a lot of it, it, can, it combines a lot of things like user management uh, authentication billing uh, client and domain management so our next step for uh, 
optimization before moving to microservices architecture is to try to split uh, and to decrease the load of core services uh, using uh, smaller pieces. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. As for billing, by the way, since you just mentioned that, do you do all of that using Stripe or some other payment provider? Uh, we have two types of uh, payment through banking, a bank card uh, with uh, Stripe and uh, through PayPal. Okay. And then as an end user, is this something where they just sign up and pay whatever it is per month or maybe like annually or whatever? Uh, yes, they have both uh, per month option or annual option. Uh, and we, of course, provide the trial, uh, 14-day trial to see if everything is okay, if they are satisfied, and then they can add uh, payment uh, information. Okay. For the Stripe setup, did you happen to use their newer APIs that all deal with like strong customer authentication in case someone has like a bank card where they need to put in a pin or whatever? Yes. If I'm not mistaken, we have updated it uh, to the new architecture. But the, the whole point of this is also to make sure you don't contain any, uh, don't um, keep any data you can delegate to uh, Stripe. So in this way, we also increase the security by avoiding to store credit card information on our site. Right. So what you're telling me is you don't have people's credit cards sitting there in plain text maybe accidentally served from your about page. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let me repeat that sentence to potential hackers. We don't store credit cards, so feel free to hack us. Right. So now let's switch gears and talk a little bit about where you have this hosted and how everything is set up for deployments and maybe testing and CI and all that fun stuff. Uh, so let's begin with where is this hosted? Amazon, Google, somewhere else? Client sites are hosted on Google Cloud, and all this infrastructure is on Google Cloud regarding hosting and clients' sites. But our services, we haven't moved them to Google Cloud yet. They are on OVH hosting, and they are actually located in a single place, if I'm not mistaken. They are all in the United States. Okay, so OVH, they are the company that provides you bare metal, but you don't need to manage it, right? I think? Right, right. But we would prefer to move all this stuff to Google Cloud. Uh, there is actually a pricing issue, because Google Cloud is more expensive. And uh, there are some things you, you build one way and later discover that uh, you can do it the other way. So perhaps if we did it from scratch, we would everything deploy to Google Cloud. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because I remember, you know, I don't have numbers in front of me, but I remember like OVH, they're well known for being like, well, here's like, you know, a huge amount of RAM, a ton of CPU power, loads of disk space, super cheap and like really performant. So it's interesting that you say you want to switch over to Google where it's more expensive. And of course, you know, maybe you can scale up a little easier, but like what was your thought process around wanting to switch away from that? Uh, the problem is time to switch all, all this stuff to Google and the price. So actually, it's good not to uh, go after the cheap solution, but have the one which is the most scalable one. So until now, we are okay, but we, we understand that our service is quickly growing. We have 30% uh, of growth per month. So we would like to have uh, the scalable solution as uh, early as possible to avoid 
later uh, overload with uh, all this moving and all these tasks. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Because but those OVH servers, you can't just well, it would be on you to to automate spinning that up and doing all of that, and you kind of have enough on your hands where you know I want to develop the app, not the infrastructure type of mindset, I guess. Exactly, exactly. We want to develop app and yes, less infrastructure. So in this regard, Google is uh, the best solution. Although we have considered also Microsoft Cloud or Amazon's Cloud, but and, and there is no much difference between them, to be honestly. They are both the same. They have both almost the same features and they have all enough of features we need. But we chose Google because it's the cheapest one in this regard. Right. Did you get any special like type of hosting credits that just pushed you over to use them? Or just in general, you figured, hey, you know, this is what we need. And on Google, it's going to be X amount cheaper. Yeah, we calculated. We, we, we spent uh, quite a while to to determining to between this or uh, choosing between these uh, cloud hosting providers. Right. And maybe this is too personal of a question to ask. But when it comes to hosting costs between all of this, do you want to give us maybe, if you can, a rough figure of like how much you're paying currently with Google for the client sites and OVH for your other stuff? Oh, it's quite difficult to say. And I wouldn't prefer to say that, but um, we estimate that moving to Google Cloud will increase our expenses uh, in uh, some significant percentage. Okay, totally fair enough. So when it comes to hosting specs across either OVH or on Google Cloud, when it comes to the client services, do you know roughly like what machine specs you have, like how much memory or CPU they have? For core services, uh, we have around uh, 32 memory, uh, gigabyte memory, and eight or uh, virtual CPU machines with uh, storage and some part of storage is uh, SSD storage. And actually, we have, uh, of course, several copies of these uh, uh, services running parallelly. It, it, it's, it's completely enough to have a few hundred thousand of uh, requests per day. Right. So you're kind of right now over-provisioned a bit just to be safe, right? Like maybe you're using 20 or 30% of your machine specs, not sitting there at like 90%, right? Sure, sure. We, we need to be careful about that because if you have an architecture which is dependent on one point, let's say user authentication, you need to make sure you have enough uh, resources to manage it. Otherwise, uh, even one website or a few websites uh, can cause a DOS attack or overload of resources and the whole system will crash. So other sites, uh, other services, they will, they are dependent on, if they are dependent on a single uh, resource, they will uh, suffer. Right. And then going back to the single resource, you know, maybe even separate from that, like when you deploy a new version of one of these applications, then are you deploying them with zero downtime because you can have like two versions of the core service running and then you kind of just take one down at a time? Like, how does that work? Ah, okay. We, we avoid to have uh, two versions of core service uh, simultaneously running in parallel on production because it may, it uh, increases the things to do together or to remember and to manage. But we have a testing and staging environment on 
of course, we have local environments for each service. When we test different versions and uh, after making final version, we then move it to the production. Okay. So that just made me think of something else too about, you know, how you have these different services. What does the development experience look like? Because if you're an engineer who kind of is dipping his toes everywhere and working on all the stuff, can you run all of these things locally on your dev box, like on you know, a laptop or whatever workstation that you have? Yes, we, we designed in a, it in a way that we can run it locally. Although some services we provide, uh, we prefer to place on containers and uh, run them on uh, Google Cloud or OVH Cloud, but still we, we can do the same on our local machine by placing them in the same container or similar container and running locally. And this is a necessary thing. I would say. If, if you build something that you cannot run locally or you need to run only on production or only on it's a live environment, that's, that's not good and that's not a flexible and uh, that's not effective way. Yeah, totally agreed. Because I remember doing some serverless work recently where certain things just, you know, the functions, whatever could be invoked locally, but yeah, it required certain services on AWS to be around to actually work. Definitely a pain in the butt when you have to wait so long to iterate on something. So if everyone is doing this in development, you know, they're running everything locally and some of the stuff requires running stuff like Linux containers, are, are all the dev developers using native Linux or do you run that in a VM? Uh, yeah, it's strange, but not all developers run native Linux. Actually, of core team, I think only one or two people are running uh, Linux on their local machines. Most of them have Macs. Okay. So then on the Mac, then I guess they just run, you know, the developers responsible for the hosting service. If they need to run Linux containers, they just put that into a VM. Right. right. Exactly. To have the same environment on uh, development and uh, testing and production. Right. I guess that's not too bad. I, that is good to hear, though, that at least you have two folks running Linux on the desktop, right? Two out of 34. Getting there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But this is for core team. So core team, six, seven people, two of seven people. But uh, we have guys who, made, uh, plug, who make plugins, guys who make um, AI and neural networks so they have python installed on their local linuxes those making plugins with php they can go with windows so i have a much a variety of platforms and stacks across the engineering team right and when it comes to setting let's say a new developer up do they just go through some documentation that that service has you know if they need to say oh go install python in this library and this database and this thing uh, there is, of course, documentation for setup. We want to make it as smooth as possible, uh, setuping everything and uh, onboarding of new engineers. And uh, yes, documentation should is necessary. Necessary even for the person who wrote that part of code. After one year, you you don't remember anything. You you need to have documentation which clearly explains you why did you wrote that line of code. Right. Yeah, you must hire a lot of smart developers because one year, man, I'm forgetting stuff after like one week. <laughs> uh, I can share. It's my experience as well. A uh, year ago, I was developer. I was writing code. Now I don't write anything. But a year ago, I was writing code and uh, I had such situation. I, I wrote something and I, I need to understand why and how uh, the code is written, even mine code. 
yeah, no, I remember writing some really complicated aux script that I just found from Googling like 10 different things. I forgot about it within, honestly, like two hours, but it had like one line of aux script with 80 lines of documentation. <laughs> so going back to your hosting setup, we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, the operating system that you run on all of your servers. Is it Ubuntu, Debian, CentOS, something else? Unfortunately, complicated question for me. I think we have at least somewhere uh, CentOS and at least somewhere Ubuntu, but I'm not sure is uh, which is the most used uh, operating system on uh, the platform services. Okay. So when it comes to deployment stuff, are the engineers who develop the code responsible for deploying that, or do you have a dedicated team that's just dedicated to infrastructure? No, those guys who write the code, they, they deploy it and they do all the part. They, they, we have created the deployment system uh, through the GitLab, uh, GitLab server. And uh, all services uh, are being deployed, including front-end service and uh, all the technology stacks, uh, back-end services. Okay. Now, speaking of front-end, we didn't get a chance to talk about that one, but... Uh, when it comes to bundling stuff like CSS and JavaScript or, you know, maybe even using TypeScript, like, do you happen to use Webpack or something similar to do all of that or no? That's a difficult question. I don't know exactly what we, do we use, but we use something. <laughs> I can say that we wrote our uh, front-end uh, using Angular. Okay, that'll work. So when it comes to setting up these servers by hand, you, you know, you kind of mentioned that you want to step away from doing infrastructure work and move to Google Cloud. But for these servers themselves, like when you spin up a brand new server on OVH or whatever, what does the process look like to go from a brand new server that has nothing on it, except for maybe Debian or Ubuntu, to having the application on it to the point where you can deploy it, right? Like installing uh, all these dependencies and setting up users and firewalls and whatnot. Do you do all of that by hand or do you use some type of configuration management tool like Ansible or something else? Uh, it depends on the stack. We use both and we have actually also uh, two guys who are uh, DevOps engineers and they ha help uh, developers with that. This is the most painful part. You know, if you have some setup on local machine, it may not work on production. And you need to be sure uh, to document all the changes, all the setup, configuration, production server. And we try to document it. This is, we did do it once and we try to document it, all the steps, all the configurations, uh, all the software installed there, all the setup is being done there uh, in order to know the current situation. And if we have second server, if we create the second one, or uh, we, we, we go through these steps again. So the best uh, thing to do, I would recommend to document everything. It doesn't matter what you are doing on production server. If you did it once, deployed everything and uh, set up everything, you need to document it. Right. And then from there, do you go one step further and maybe make like a, a shell script out of that so you can automate it so someone can be like, okay, like, I run this script and then the server is set up mostly. Right, right. If you can automate, you should automate. Otherwise, uh, there is a probability of error, just one typo and uh, everything uh, may, uh, you may your developers may spend hours to understand uh, what is going wrong there on production. Yeah, for sure. 
Now, you mentioned you do have a couple of, you know, DevOps engineers. Do you know off the top of your head, maybe if they've looked into using tools like Terraform, maybe to automate the process of creating components of your infrastructure, like, you know, being able to say, hey, I want this database, two servers and a load balancer on Google Cloud. Here's a script that makes it work with Terraform. They just run the command and that gets created. I'm not sure exactly about Terraform, but we have such thing and we have such a an automation when dealing at least with client sites because uh, when uh, running or se- setting up new instance with uh, client sites and containers you do the same thing again uh, in this regard our services each of them is unique with its unique staff with sta- stack and unique setup but for hosting infrastructure instances with client sites containers they are all the same so in this regard yeah we have shell scripts uh, which uh, automate this uh, setting up new servers. Right. And then from the customer's point of view, if they go and sign up on your site, do they get access to that within a reasonable amount of time? Like, is it fully automated and within like 10 minutes or whatever, they're good to go? Like, it doesn't require a human to go in there and create those things and get back to them in like five days. Sure. It, it is the thing we need, we need to care about and we don't leave it to customers. If customer creates new website or... Uh, is being signed up and by default they get new website. So that new, that site is uh, being seeded somewhere in some container and uh, is uh, being allocated to their client. So the next client is coming, a new uh, site is being uh, seeded and uh, allocated to them. And uh, this is the you should leave to clients. Right, but the turnaround time for that is like, I put in my credit card details, make an account on your platform, it's ready to go within like, I don't know, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes or something like fully automated. Uh, first it was like that, like a few minutes, but now it is even better automated. The site is, the client site is already prepared. Ah. When the client is, hasn't even signed up, the site is prepared and ready for a new client to sign up. And after that, it's being tied to that client. And this way, we avoid that uh, time. Uh, you, you mentioned that few minutes time to spend to set up new site, like to set up new container, to install web server, database, and uh, WordPress inside it, and other things like this. Um, that's why we prepare it beforehand. Yeah, that's a very good idea. It's kind of like, you know, prefetching the content on a web page before someone clicks the link or whatever, right? By the time they click the link, then it's all ready to go. Exactly. And then I guess what? Do you just hang on to that server or, you know, the containers that you create for a certain amount of time? Like if they don't pull the trigger and actually submit the payment details and go 100%, do you then just like decommission that container after like five hours or whatever? Uh, not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. That container may wait for the next client. Ah, okay. So we keep a few containers with ready sites waiting to the next client to sign up. That's really cool. It's like an assembly line. Like it's just there ready to go, waiting to be handed off to someone. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about what your deployment process looks like. Like if you're a developer on your team, one of your engineers, and you're developing, I don't know, maybe a patch to the performance service or the core service, it doesn't really matter. Like what does the workflow look like? Do they make a feature branch and like push it up to, you mentioned GitLab before, like is there a CI, like what's going on there? Yeah, there is both CI and also uh, Gitflow. 
one can use any type of but uh, what is more what is important you need to have flow for versioning for patches for hot fixes we use git flow we didn't make anything complicated but uh, yeah one can prefer gitlab flow or there are some uh, less complicated ones but we chose git flow it works well so for patch there is a separate branch for hotfix i mean for uh, release there is a version release there is separate branch for features there are separate branch which are being later merged into the release branch okay so do you also have some form of like a review process like if someone writes some code do two or three other people need to okay that before it gets merged into the live branch or whatever your production branch is? Right. Uh, code review is a must. Even the most experienced developer should, his code, their code should be reviewed. And we, we use just one person for code review. But on the other hand, we have a separate code review for security. Right. Yeah, that's really important for sure, especially if you're dealing with like customers and customers and all this other stuff. Exactly. So... On the topic of security, uh, how do you manage secrets like API keys or email credentials, like things that you wouldn't want to put up on GitLab, but you still need to use them? Uh, it depends, but uh, there are basic rules one need to follow. You, you shouldn't store anything in the code itself. I mean, configurations and secrets, should, they should be separated from code. Uh, there should be encrypted, uh, and so not in plain text. And uh, yeah, you should limit access to them to the least number possible of people. Okay. So how do those secrets make their way from whoever you trusted to keep track of that from their box onto the server? Like, does someone just copy those over and then encrypt them? Or like, uh, how does it just make its way into the production server, basically? First, we set up it. Uh, secrets, what, what is necessary on production server, and we keep it then and there and uh, regularly update uh, these um, keys or secrets there. We, we, we don't uh, we don't copy it for each uh, deployment or each version release. Okay, so the secrets themselves, then they're just they're always on the server somewhere. It's never sitting on one of your developers' boxes or whatever. Uh, some secrets are there. Some secrets are on. GitLab structure, infrastructure, server. And uh, if you have a production and test and staging environment, you also have uh, separate secrets for each of them. So let's say developer does everything locally. They have their secrets for their local environments. But for production and testing, uh, you need to keep them on different place. Right. So for something like a developer you know, hacking away on the billing system using like the test keys for Stripe. They're not using the real keys, but then in production or I don't know what your CI setup is like, but you have those real keys hidden somewhere safely. Yes, yes, exactly. And right, uh, test keys should be different from production keys because mm -hmm. uh, the, the, there's no not the same requirement for uh, let's say, uh, security regarding, let's say, development server. For development server, perhaps you enable debugging or enable any other configuration which is more more vulnerable. And it's okay for development server, but for production server, you have a totally different uh, setup and configuration. Right. Now, going back to that CI setup that you mentioned before, 
do you have a whole bunch of automated tests being run through that for all your different services, like Laravel tests and Node tests and Python tests, etc.? Exactly. There are uh, different types of tests. Uh, some are for security, like uh, checking dependencies, if they are secure or if they are in some uh, vulnerability database. Uh, if so, the deployment is being stopped. Uh, there is static code linters and checkers. And uh, there are also, of course, unit tests and other automated tests running through the uh, during the deployment. Okay. Do you happen to know off the top of your head, like which linting tools do you use for various different programming languages? Like with Python, do you use Flake 8 and Black? Yes, we, we use both Flake, Flake 8 and Black for Python. Uh, we use, I think, Python Bandit, it's called, or PHP Bandit, one of them is called this way, for a security check and dependencies check. Of course, for each stack, you need to use the different solution, but there are solutions for Python, for Node.js, and for PHP, and we use all of them. Nice. So I have not heard about that PHP Bandit one, but I'll make sure to drop a link to that one in the show notes. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about how you plan for disasters or, you know, unexpected events or malicious users, you know, things are likely to go wrong at some point, hopefully not, but maybe, but how do you deal with things like backing up databases, maybe even backing up your customers uploaded files? Like, yeah. What do you do for that stuff? Okay. So, uh, first for our database, that is services, database, users and billing and other stuff, we have there its backup. We have a second reserved uh, server for core and all services, uh, which are working through load balancers. So in case something happens wrong, uh, one of the servers is going uh, to uh, get full load on it. And uh, for client sites, we regularly have a few types of backups. First one is through the plugin, backup plugin, Backupping WordPress site content and files, database and files. Uh, second type of backup is uh, instance wide. That is all the instance with uh, client containers and sites uh, is being snapshotted regularly. And uh, we have, of course, restore solutions to bring back them to the previous state, uh, version. So when it comes to those automated backups on Google Cloud, are you just using what's built in to Google Cloud, like for the database itself? Or do you have your own custom script set up to do, you know, like a MySQL dump or whatever the equivalent is for MongoDB? Uh, we have our custom services. Uh, okay. And then for OVH, like I've never used them personally. So I know some cloud providers, you know, they, they can back up a whole entire instance and it kind of just sits there as a backup that you can restore from, or you can go in there and write your own scripts to back up whatever you want. Do you know which one you use for that? Uh, we use both. Okay. Depend Depending on the service. Okay. So for other things, you know, for keeping track of errors or just taking a look at logs, like how do you deal with logs right now? Do you just go in there directly on the server or is there some like centralized Google service that you can use to take a look at that stuff? That's a nice question. Uh, for our services, we have... Uh, separate server for logs because there are several services like around 10 services and each of them produces its log. It's better to have dedicated serv service for handling and uh, logs and managing logs. 
For client sites, uh, each website log is uh, contained in its uh, own container. Okay, so for that centralized logging, uh, which service do you use for that? Or did you roll your own setup? For a uh, centralized service, we use our own logging system. Related to logging, what about things like error reporting? Like let's say one of the servers starts throwing some type of error 500 or something goes wrong. Do you get notified somehow through email or Slack or something else? Both. And not only email and Slack, but also monitoring system with its uh, logging and reporting. So we have actually a beautiful dashboard full of these uh, loads uh, and uh, traffic data and everything is visualized there. But uh, this is for beautiful part, but uh, the hard part is that uh, there is an automatic integration uh, which will awake our developers if something is going wrong by Slack message first and by calling to their phone. Ah, so do you have any of this hooked up to like a third-party service like Sentry to get these error notifications and stack traces or is it all homegrown? Uh, this is Sentry. Okay, yeah, they're a really good service when it comes to that stuff. On the topic of maybe, you know, just logging and getting alerted, do you have any automated like alarms set up to where maybe like one of those CPUs on one of the boxes is pegged at like 90% for 10 minutes? So then someone gets notified to know like, hey, by the way, the server is becoming unhealthy. Sure. We have for uh, every server, there is its own threshold of uh, CPU usage, uh, storage usage, memory usage, like one minute usage uh, limit, five minutes and 15 minutes. And uh, most of these notifications, they go to Slack channel when uh, not uh, only a single person, but a whole team of developers will see it and uh, provide an immediate solution if something goes, goes wrong. Okay. So how many lucky developers do you have that get to have their phone buzzing at 3 a.m. if something goes wrong? It doesn't happen too often, perhaps a couple of times uh, during the year. They're lucky, I think, in this regard. <laughs> right. So you mentioned, though, before about the database backups, like you do have a restore process. Have you gone through the motions of just testing that out, you know, just to be prepared, like if disaster did strike? Exactly. You, you need not only to have plan B and uh, security controls, but you, you need to make sure that the security controls are in a working condition and they are ready and nothing happens. So we do regular checkup of all these uh, security controls like running them a few times a year to see if uh, they are still okay or something happened with them. Right. Now, on the topic of, you know, things being okay or not, do you have any, like, external sites that ping one of your uh, public sites, like maybe, you know, 10web.com or something like that or whatever, just to make sure that it's up and responding with a 200? Uh, yes, we have. For each service, we have a dedicated, like, API URL, uh, which... Uh, will inform about its about its status. Okay. Do you have uh, a name of a specific service that you use for that? Uh, we use a software called Zabbix, I think. It regularly uh, sends requests to these status uh, URLs and to see if they are alive or not. But of course, you, you should not rely only on this solution because maybe something is going wrong, but the status URL doesn't reflect that real problem. So you need to use all the complex of the solutions we talked about, yeah? Status URLs, uh, automatic monitoring alert system, 
dashboard, logging, etc. These are all essential components which complement each other. Yeah, if you're going to take the time to create a beautiful dashboard, you might as well get some good use out of it. <laughs> so uh, earlier, you kind of mentioned how it's a little bit tricky to have, you know, all of your clients sharing the same instances. So everyone is sort of on their own. And you mentioned like denial of service attacks, right? Because you don't want to be set up in a situation where one DDoS on one client can affect everyone. But do you have any like centralized DDoS service that you use in front of all of these sites just to protect yourself against that or no? We have Cloudflare uh, DDoS protection, and we also have uh, rate limits for each services. And uh, especially for critical services, there are uh, rate limits per IP, depending on the business logic of that service. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely a really good setup, especially nowadays where it's sort of kind of easy to get access to a lot of bandwidth. So having protection against that is uh, really nice to have. Like, that's a valuable thing. And is that something that customers of yours just get for free then just as part of your service? Well, not free in the sense, like, you know, it comes with the bundle with what they pay for. Okay. Our customers uh, get uh, free security scans and uh, malware protection in a sense that it scans to uh, the WordPress instance, the files and database to see uh, if there is uh, some unauthorized change there. For example, if there is a PHP script which uh, sneaked into the website and uh, it does something malicious, uh, it will be easily be discovered uh, when uh, that uh, automatic scan runs and it will point to it. Also, there is a protection for um, outdated uh, plugins. So we have a blacklist of plugins and we also... Uh, have alerts when there is something uh, like a vulnerable version of the plugin installed. Sometimes we there there was even a situation when we have disabled uh, disabled a vulnerable plugin for thousands of clients to make sure uh, they uh, are not vulnerable to the attack. Very nice. So are all the clients also then behind Cloud, Cloudflare too, or no? Uh, we don't provide any Cloudflare integration, at least not yet. Uh, so each client may set up uh, its own Cloudflare uh, protection. Right. And then for stuff like DNS hosting and, and manipulating the records, that's all then on them if they want to optionally set that up, like on their own domain, like you wouldn't provide that as part of your service? Uh, no, we don't provide uh, DNS service. Or, sorry, we don't provide uh, domain uh, registration service. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're in the business of hosting, not so much being like, you know, a domain registrar. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building all of this? For developers, those who want to build similar infrastructure or for WordPress developers and our clients, I would say. Oh, I would say this is uh, based on your developers building all of these different services like core and performance and hosting. If... I say one single advice, I would say that you need to plan 100 times before writing the article. You need, you need to figure out, taking into account, how this structure will be scaled into. Because sometimes one can have uh, one product in mind when writing its code and creating its architecture. But later, when it evolves into something different, you discover that 
the architecture is not scalable enough, it's not flexible enough, or uh, there are some fundamental problems you would avoid if you thought uh, a year ago about them. So in this regard, uh, for every major change, and we spent a lot of time discussing architecture, we have even dedicated team for architecture uh, consisting of uh, architects and senior engineers. Wow. Okay. So maybe we can rewind then and talk a little bit about just for a few minutes here, like uh, how did your current architecture come into existence? Like, did this start with just having one service on one server with maybe one database and then it grew organically? Or did you kind of just plan out all of this ahead of time? Most of the architecture we have now, we were planned. We planned uh, beforehand and it is really good. Otherwise, it, it would grow into something that is differ, difficult to maintain, to scale, and to develop. And even with such planning we had a few years ago, it was really good, uh, taking into account on where we were a couple of years ago. Even with such pl- planning, we still see that there are a lot of things to change. Yeah. Well, no, what you've done is quite impressive, right? You have this system with potentially millions of lines of code, a whole bunch of different services, and... You had the foresight to know to architect things in a certain way where it's all working, right? Like it didn't just come down in a big dump, you know, dumpster fire on day one. Like it's still going strong and, and nicely. Right. So the single advice for architecting, think years for uh, years of uh, future uh, when for things that even you don't know will happen or not, but try to make everything as flexible as you can to take into account all these unknowns. Right. And if there's, let's just say, you know, maybe a smaller team out there, just a solo developer, would you still say to go down that route or maybe just go, you know, try something out a little bit smaller and kind of just build it up? Because, uh, you know, as one person, you can only do so much. Uh, that advice is uh, true also for uh, solo developers. Again, you, you one can write a lot of code and later discover that half of that code should be fundamentally be rewrite it. So it's much better to think uh, ahead and uh, to consider all these possibilities. Of course, uh, you, you cannot plan everything from uh, uh, before beforehand, but if, even taking into account that startup or small team should be quite flexible. flexible. But uh, regarding the architecture, it is good to know as much as possible beforehand for doing it. Right. Yeah, no, that is definitely great advice. So, Tigran, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that conversation. For sure. So before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? You you, you can uh, share a timeweb.io website, uh, my LinkedIn profile, and we have also blog where we post uh, and we will post even more technical uh, articles for developers and agencies. So timeweb.io slash blog. Actually, we we thought that the best way for content writing and blogging is when uh, engineers themselves share their experience and not a content writer or a person who has less experience in that uh, writing article. Yeah, that's a really, really great point, right? Because it's one hard enough 
to be a developer and learn things. But when you have like multiple levels of abstraction of different writers who aren't developers, so many subtle things that are super important just get completely lost. Right. So cool. On that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.